The Snake River Killer podcast is tracking multiple active and cold cases. This investigation is happening in real time. All individuals named and unnamed in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty by a court of law. Where is Christina White? Who is the suspect? Detective Jackie Nichols believes there may be a connection between Christina White's disappearance, the murders of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller, as well as the disappearance of Stephen Pearsall. All suspected to have fallen victim at the hands of another. Law enforcement made a critical discovery shortly after the murders of Miller and Nelson. The man that was working in the theater that night lived at the home where Christina White disappeared from. He was very odd himself. He was more creepy, scary odd. I just want to go ahead and thank you guys for joining us today in this kind of Q&A session, special episode where we um, we listen to the, the listeners. Um, they write in and uh, we gather their questions, their ideas, their feedback, and we do our best to kind of address those, answer those to the best of our ability. Of course, a lot of questions in these cases have no ready answers to them, but we can maybe kind of sort through what we've got. So Chris Taylor reached out with a question. Um, he said, I have a question related to a Soten 128. Uh, he further says, some Googling turned up information on the Red Wolf Bridge. And listeners will remember that this is the bridge spanning the Snake River from which a witness or witnesses saw uh, right around the Kristen David murder, somebody maybe in a blue truck uh, throwing things off the bridge into the Snake River. Um, this bridge is also on Highway 128, just for point of reference. Chris goes on to say this site has details from an inspection in 2022 and lists the bridge in a Soton County and associates it with State Route 128. It also shows the bridge was built in 1979. Um, that was the year, of course, that Christina White went missing. He provided a link, which we'll put on our website. Uh, and according to that link, which is through the U University of Idaho archives, digital archives, the bridge was dedicated in October of 79. So several months after Christina White went missing, his question to us is uh, related to the bridge. Is it possible that the bridge was under construction when Christina White went missing? And would Lance have had any connection to the bridge? My question to the group uh, is, did anybody else know about the construction of the bridge? Gloria, did you know anything about the construction of the bridge being in 1979? I did receive a message um, gosh, years ago, that Christina White's bicycle could have been at the base of that bridge. I've always kind of held that nugget back in my, you know, in my brain, but there's nothing that's been established to even prove that. So that's all I know about that. So did you know about the construction of the bridge being in 1979? No, I did not. Okay. Okay. Any ideas from the group as to whether, and I don't know if there's an answer to this, is a construction site 
a perfect cover for somebody that wants to hide something or are there too many boots on the ground, too much commotion going on uh, for that to be a site? I mean, I think from television, we see like, oh, there's a construction site and they find a body or something, right? And in fact, we saw that last February when there were the ancestral remains found at a construction site, but that was coming in later on. Any thoughts as as to that? I mean, do we know of any cases off the top of our heads where a criminal or a killer has tried to hide a body in a construction site? I mean, and this is near a river, so that's a little bit different. Any thoughts on that? Um, I can't think of specific cases, but I feel like I have heard of cases where evidence, even bodies were hidden in different construction sites but also with it being a bridge i feel like that would be a little bit different than you know pouring a slab of concrete and you know building a, a house over that or something so i'm not sure how i feel about this one yeah it's a little bit different paul that would have been my same thing as i was wondering if if chris was referring to putting the body in the in in the piers or or somehow hiding the body in the foundations of of the bridge but based on when they would have been pouring and the set time of 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 concrete and then they probably wouldn't have been walking off for somebody to uh, to to bring a body over and that doesn't seem likely to me yeah i mean a bridge right there kind of, I mean, it's not in the middle of town, it's on the edge of town, but there's certainly a lot of traffic on the shores of the river there. So it would be a fairly conspicuous site. Kathy, any thoughts? I mean, that was my thought as well, is just given the geography of the area, why choose a place that's right there in town when you've got literally hundreds and hundreds of miles of of just you know the palouse there's so many places to hide a body to me it doesn't make as much sense to put it right there because unless you've seen and maybe um you know having visited recently i realized how close the red wolf crossing bridge is to town and so that made me think about that but i do think it's creative thinking on the part of the listener you know yeah that's why i wanted to include it yeah. um certainly because I had I didn't connect the fact that Red Wolf was built in 79. So I think anytime you see, you know, things that pop up in the timeline, it's always worth, you know, looking at. The next question is maybe somewhat related um, from Cassandra Wilbur, who said she loves the podcast, but she wishes that she could understand the geography of the Snake River area a little more. And she's wondering if a map of the valley with tags for where folks went missing and where they were found could be added to the website. And I can answer that. Yes, uh, Sam and I have been talking about that. In fact, we just talked about it a couple of weeks ago. So we are working on that. But Cassandra goes on to say there is the idea that by looking at these locations, it's possible to, well, maybe predict where the killer might have been residing or or she sort of says you know this was something she found interesting um in a different case uh wayne williams as the atlanta child killer but i'm wondering from what she's kind of getting at is you know what can the geography tell us about the cases um and uh, in the next episode i talked to um 
FBI profiler, Julia Cowley, and she talked about how important victimology is in learning about the killer. And I'm wondering if there's ways in which, you know, you study the victims, everything about them, and that can tell you something about the killer. And I'm wondering, can we study the geography to learn about the killer? And maybe that's a little too far or wide of a question, but, um, Kathy, you were talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles of place, places to get rid of a body if one were, you know, ill-intentioned and, and a murderer uh, in that scenario. We know that Lance came to the valley and Gloria can correct me if I'm wrong or anybody else as early as 78, 77, somewhere in there. Um, a lot of people have asked, why did he come to the valley? And there doesn't seem to be any clear reason. Most people that move to the Valley move there for the college, um, and they tend to be younger people, uh, or they're working for the college, or they work for the timber company, you know, possibly in the service industry. But that, and, and I could be wrong on that, but that's my general sense of things. Is it possible, here's the question, that Lance looked at the geography or that a killer could look at this geography with two rivers, a confluence, vast acreage, fairly small towns as an ideal geography to run amok. I mean, is that, is that fair? Or is that too much? Paul, what do you think? No, I think that's reasonable. Uh, and, the, and the one other thing that came to my mind is some of the struggles they dealt with, with different jurisdictions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I forgot to mention that because you've got really three states. You've got Oregon, Idaho, and Washington. And as we've sort of talked about on the show before, and I've spoken with Jackie Nichols about this, back in the 70s and 80s, those police uh, jurisdictions, I mean, the communication was almost nil. I mean, it's even hard now, from what I understand, to communicate from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and they get readouts all the time. Kathy, any other thoughts to add to that? What would lead someone to the valley? Why would Lance end up here? Um, is it an ideal place? Other thoughts to add? Well, I think of a couple things. One, if you were trying to get away from something that you'd done, a great place to go would be someplace in the literal middle of nowhere, right? I mean, it's not coastal. It's not close to a border. There really isn't a major metropolitan area. So if I were trying to get away from something I'd done, I'd go someplace that seemed desolate. So I think it'd be a good hiding place just for him as a person. And I also think the water's a draw. I mean, he's from Chicago, and then he went to the coast of California, and then the Snake River Valley, obviously, is a, what there's more water there. So he's drawn to that, I think. Marianne, is there anything in the literature or anything you've come across where killers choose places, locations based on their predilection of killing, or is that just too um, abstract to study? Yeah, I think more of what has been looked at in the literature kind of comes from the other side. And I think this may be what Cassandra was referring to in her question, um, rather than looking at why he moved there, which is still an interesting question, but we have this crime mapping that we see used a lot. And 
you know, crime analysts are oftentimes employed by different police departments to kind of map out where certain crimes are occurring and to help kind of know where to focus the police resources um, if there's a higher frequency of a certain type of a crime occurring in an area. Um, but related to that, there's also this idea that offenders tend to commit crimes where they're more comfortable and more familiar with the area. So by mapping out the crimes and, you know, coming up with a map like Cassandra was suggesting, the idea is that you can kind of predict where the offender may either live or work because they tend to stay within a certain radius or within a certain distance of where they're most familiar because they feel like they know how to get away with it. They know how to get to and from, you know, these locations rather than traveling a long distance to an area that they're not really familiar with and kind of putting themselves more at risk of being caught and not being able to kind of get away and uh, not be detected. So I do think about, about that and also similar to that using the victimology, like you mentioned, with trying to be able to predict a type of victim or, you know, who he may be seeking out next, even if he does seem to be more of a, you know, committing a crime of opportunity versus targeting a specific victim. But location could be more of a target than a particular victim, I think. So it would be interested in looking and putting together a map like that and seeing if we can find any patterns and right anything related to where they went missing, where uh, bodies have been found and that sort of thing. I think that's a really good point, particularly when we look at cases in California. Um, that may be a real, you know, a real insight. That idea of using um, locations in a map uh, as, as a kind of predictive model, um, I think is really fascinating. Does anybody want to talk about the pink discolored rag in the Christina White case? My only comment was just sort of what we went back to, Brandon, pretty early on of of almost the the script that uh, that Lance seemed to have uh, in, in certain events. What whether it was given to him directly or just you know you repeat certain stories in your head so often that you grab onto very specific details and those details come out, or whether or not very specific details are intentionally inserted into a narrative to make them more believable. So with Clint being very specific about describing in, and Paul, you had mentioned this before, cause you interviewed Clint. He can be, he was very, very descriptive in certain parts and then absolutely no memory of, of other things. Right. Uh, um, and, a, and a little bit of disconnect of details in certain other cases. But Yeah. I had talked to Clint, but this has been like in 2009 he never mentioned the washcloth, you know, or towel to me. Um, Betty White, who was Christina's mom, she had told me about the towel being around Voss's neck when she saw him. However, it's not in any report by the police, according to Jackie. So we're back to, unless it's documented, 
it never happened. So. Right. Yeah. So, and there have been just so many varying accounts on this that you're right. If it's not documented, we just really don't have much to go on there. Kathy or Marianne, anything else to add on that? Well, I don't really have anything to add except that I think we know that they probably had a pretty decent relationship because he's maintained his loyalty to him all these years. It puts us in this weird place of playing armchair psychologist, which, you know, it's not my training. It's not my background. I glean from my conversations that Clint has a loyalty or fealty or something to Lance. Um, It could be born out of equal parts admiration for having being a father figure back in the day and also fear. I mean, there could be a weird mixture of that there. So I want to jump down to Kristen wrote in. She said, hello, I'm listening to your podcast. My mom was attacked near Santa Rosa around 1971. She was at a party and a quote, quote, friend of a friend was at the party and asked if she would go with him to get more beer for the party, which she did. She got in his car and he didn't go to the store and went to an abandoned house near the area where he then strangled and attempted or did rape my mom, she wrote. Her mom tried to escape at one point and he grabbed and dragged her back to the house and strangled her until she was unconscious and blood came out of her ears. This is just horrific stuff. Uh, At some point, a light came up the driveway and he got spooked and ran out, leaving her there. She eventually ran to the street to a store and found a phone, called her parents who called the cops. They filed a report. There was so much more to the story, she said, multiple escaped attempts, maybe a knife. This listener has always thought that this wasn't the first nor the last time that this guy would do this. She was going to meet up with her mom this past summer, and she said she's going to send her photographs of Lance Voss to her mother to see if she recognizes him. She also wants to record her story if she'll let her, but because she doesn't know if she shared all the details, if she can remember the whole story. So this is a very kind of very graphic uh, story. I have not heard back from Kristen. Has this, um, because this kind of disturbed me when I read this, has this been passed on to law enforcement such as Jackie, or have you contacted it hasn't been passed on to law enforcement in terms of Lance Voss, but it, I believe they, uh, you know, they called the cops back in 71. Has anybody from the team spoke to her? I have not. And uh, Kristen kind of went dark on me. So I can reach out again. Is there something there, Gloria, that you're thinking? Yes. Um, he had a real estate license. He would be aware of vacant houses, abandoned houses, houses for sale. He had this in California. He was working for Realcom, which was a real estate agency. This could be the victim that we've talked about that got away that hasn't really talked to anybody. And so my concern with that is we don't want to taint her memories and why law law enforcement should talk to her just to see what she has to say. And they're trained, law enforcement is trained to get that information out. So my recommendation would be to pass this on to law enforcement, to Detective Jackie Nichols. You know, I didn't connect the abandoned house with his real estate license, Gloria. So I'm thinking if I live in California and I'm at somebody's party, would I automatically know that there's a abandoned house just 
somewhere near. I mean, that that takes a kind of specific knowledge to know that that is literally an abandoned house and not just a house that's, you know, a summer. I, I don't know. Exactly. Uh, that was a red flag for me on on this. He didn't sell any homes, to my knowledge. I think he only got the real estate license to his relative um, nephew. Um, probably hooked him, you know, his stepdad probably hooked him up with that. I believe there was another boss that had a real estate license. Um, I did reach out um, to the Realcom uh, real estate agency he worked for, and they wouldn't talk to me. But as far as like houses that are empty or abandoned, uh, that's a perfect place to commit a rape, to commit a murder. Nobody's going to be interrupting you if you know it's, you know, vacant unless they drive up in the driveway and, and spook you. So um, I'd like to pass this one on to Jackie Nichols. I really would. I think this is one that needs to be seen or, you know, have law enforcement take the reins. Yeah, definitely. Does a, an abandoned house ring a bell for anybody else? I was just thinking back on some of the cases, Kathy. Well, it makes me think of Christina White, right? Because the house that he owned was just two doors down from where Christina Rose and Clint were living, correct? So not abandoned, but vacant. Vacant. That's a better word. <laughs> so I was thinking of the abandoned house that cops mentioned in the Diane Taylor case. There was an oh. abandoned house oh. down the street from where her body was found. And they wondered if the paint flakes under her nails came from that structure. So again, just it just barely crossed my mind as I was talking about that. This is such a disturbing uh, story for so many reasons. The fact that we have somebody that's been trying to escape and it's a struggle and it went on for some time. It sounds like, I mean, the blood out of the ears and everything else is just horrific. Marianne, one of the things I'm kind of curious about from a criminologist point of view and I heard this somewhere else. We may have been talking about it down in the Valley, Gloria, when we were down there recently. I'm trying to come around to this question a little bit. It came up when we were talking again about the MO of Kristen David. Julia Cowley, the FBI agent that I spoke to recently, said she wouldn't rule Kristen David out because perpetrators often change their MOs. And it depends on what happens during the perpetration of the crime. Like, I think it was Gary Ridgway who was trolling for sex workers. And one of the sex workers, instead of fighting back, just said, I'm just going to go with this. And that outraged him, right? He liked what he liked was that they were afraid and terrified and, and fearful and they would fight back. But the one time that somebody just sort of relented, it, it infuriated him like that. That's not how he wanted it to go. So I'm just thinking this woman was attacked multiple times by this the, this this perpetrator. Does that sound like a one-off? I know there's so little to go go on here or something that sounds practiced. I mean, you've got an abandoned house. To me, that sounds like it's premeditated or there's some foreknowledge there. Um, I just, what's your take on this? So definitely MO is something that can change from one crime to the next or over a period of time. 
based off of things, like you said, like the circumstances of the particular crime. If something unexpected occurs, then they have to change what they're doing because the whole intent is to get away with the crime, right? So whatever they need to do to be able to successfully complete the crime and get away without being caught is essentially their MO what has to be done to complete that crime. And if something goes awry, then they're going to change those behaviors in an attempt to still be able to either complete the crime and get away or at least get away without being caught. So it can also change over time due to things like experience, right? Like, you know, one of the first crimes that he commits, he's less experienced. And so he may you know, have had something in particular planned, but if that didn't work out or, you know, he had to change things then, then you kind of learn from your mistakes. So the next one he knows, well, something like that could happen. Maybe I didn't consider it last time, but now I need to take it into consideration on how I am going to complete this crime and and not get caught. Is there also not the issue of control? going on here. Like these perpetrators are all about control. And this scenario that we're looking at here, it really reads to me, or it comes off as a situation that was almost spiraling out of his control. Yeah. So control is a huge thing. Yes. And in a lot of these crimes and, you know, just sex crimes in particular, they're not typically about the the sexual acts. They're about that power and control over the person. And, you know, sometimes we even find that some offenders, some sex offenders are impotent, you know, so they can't even complete the, the sex crime in the way that we would think of it. And so, you know, they have to turn to objects or things like that. And so it can be more of a matter of control and, and power. And in some cases, humiliation, Um, like you brought up with Gary Ridgway, you know, when the victim wasn't fighting back, that's what he wanted. That's what, you know, got him excited. So when she didn't do that, it enraged him and he may have had to change what he normally did in order to get that feeling of control and power back. Right. Right. Paul, anything, any reaction to, to this, this uh, listener feedback? And just kind of touching on what Gloria said, you know, people sometimes, you know, we're semantics guys, uh, but abandoned vacant, you know, sometimes those are, word sometimes people use those words interchangeably uh so it may have been more of a vacant home that was a known vacant residence as opposed to you know an abandoned drug house or something like that where uh, you know squatters or whatever else so i I think there's a you know if there's something to the fact that this was actually a vacant home that was just referred to by her mother or by her you know and and somewhere in translation it became an abandoned home right i don't think that that it's necessarily could be one or the other, I think, which supports what Gloria said that, you know, if this was a known vacancy, yep, uh, that word can easily be abandoned, right? So. Absolutely. Yeah, it could have been a, a house on the market, right? Um, and somewhere in the storytelling, it, it just got referenced as an abandoned home rather than uh, vacant. I think that's an, a very important point. And the thing that you talked about earlier, too, 
was this is somebody who went to a party and targeted or found somebody to pull away from the scene. You know, let's go get some beer. I want to get you out of this situation, you know, pulling that person out of that social context, which is a totally different uh, approach than the Santa Rosa hitchhikers, which you interestingly point out is about a year later. So it may be that if you're dealing with the same killer here, um, that they're again, not only maybe changing up MO, but changing up the way that they entrap victims. I want to jump in here real quick, just to make a clarification. Paul referenced the Santa Rosa hitchhiker murders. These were a string of related murders in and around Santa Rosa, California during this period in the early 1970s. They are cases that we have looked into and we will most likely do an episode on in the future because there are parallels between those cases and the cases that we've looked at in the Lewis Clark Valley. Kathy, um, comments on this, anything that we've said, um, that's standing out to you? Not really. I mean, the only thing I'm, I'm making a connection with is I'm really fascinated with this idea of his access to vacant homes. And I think that that might lead us someplace in terms of investigating the crimes. I'd like to know what he had access to in the Valley, the years that the crimes went down, what properties he had access to. The abandoned or vacant homes really makes me think about any property that he might have had access to. For example, the house that he had in Asotin, the dome homes when they were under construction. Did anything go down during that time? Right. I've already mentioned to you that I think the his access to the Mason Lodge and his access to the VFW buildings ought to be looked at. You know, those are places that he could have hidden things or stashed a person, you know, while he was waiting to transport them to a better location. I think it's a really good point, especially when you consider the fact that it was his one-time real estate insurance agent, Dolores Brereton, who he, when he was trying to sell his Asotin house, a vacant house, he invited her back and she's the one that he's like, oh, you got to go down to the basement. You really need to check out the basement. And she started to head down and she spun around and he had something up behind him and put his arm down quickly behind him. It was like a finial off of a, a, a stair rail. So there's clearly a connection between real estate in that case or vacant homes, absent homes. Samantha has zeroed in on a home he's connected to via one of the classified ads that she's really been looking at uh, recently. So I think that's a, I think in terms of investigation comes back to like, okay, we look at victimology, but let's look at these as maybe other avenues for further investigation. Gloria, anything else to add on this one before we move on? He had access to the Third Street house in Asotin until 1987 when he sold it. And this just buzzwords made me click on conversations I'd had. Uh, People at the Civic Theater, when they had parties, he would ask to take girls home. He would, you know, try to get them to come with him. So um, that could be the woman being lured away. That's that's a possibility. There's also a church on Fifth Street, 
going back to what Kathy said about the Masonic Lodge and the theater, um, somebody had said to look at a church on Fifth Street. I'd have to research that church because I can't remember the name of the church okay. and that it had um, a basement and he had done some cement work, which we know he's every place he's gone. He's done cement work. But anyway, back to the Asotan house. He had that until 1987. I didn't know it was that long. That's interesting. Yes. And the dogs um, alerted to the area. It's not a basement. Like you go down the stairs to a basement. It's like, it's a sub level sort like, of things. It's a walkout basement, isn't it? Right. And so the dogs alerted there and they also alerted um, to the shed that was on the property. And when you say dogs, we're talking about cadaver dogs. Yes. Yes. But nothing was, nothing was ultimately found. Mm -mm. Right. But I think when we were talking with Jackie recently and I didn't know this and I may have this wrong, but, yeah, there was cement work done in the basement, right, uh, of that house. Yes, there was cement work done. Uh, the dogs alerted to a corner in that house. And Detective Alan Johnson uh, did ground penetrating radar. And he also jackhammered and dug down to like bedrock. And he probably would have dug to China. Um what I can say from my knowledge with dogs is there must have been enough fluid there, bodily fluid, to um, stay. The the person had been there, you know, probably decomposing. Yeah, I find that interesting. And I, and I for the listeners, I, I know what Glory is talking about firsthand because, Glory, you've been training your dog. Uh, dogs and what one of the things that you were telling me about is putting material inside cement for them to alert on um, and you, you've been working with that so that makes sense to me I want to jump in here just one more time to give you an update on the case we have been discussing since I recorded this episode the listener Kristen has reached back Evidently, she did speak with her mom, showed her a picture of Lance, and it turns out that, at least according to her mother, Lance was not her attacker. So we can at least rule him out in this instance. But I do think the case is important, and I'm glad that we talked it through, because it does raise the notion of real estate properties and access to properties. And because Lance was involved in real estate, that's an avenue of inquiry that I think is worthwhile. I want to jump to another one that's sort of related to this one, but it's from Matthew Crudo. And I did follow up with him, but I haven't heard back. Matthew writes, he says, I have some information about a dead woman found in San Jose during the time Lance was living and working in the area within a mile of the Berryessa School District Library. He said, shoot me an email and I'll give you my phone number from there. Uh, I do have to follow up with someone in regards to the story, though. The discovery was from my father's co-worker. But as I was listening to this podcast and the story led to San Jose, the situation my father's friend encountered popped into my head immediately. So here we've got um, San Jose, the Berryessa School District Library, which I find really interesting. We have a dead woman. I haven't found any jane does in that area but but i could be wrong um gloria is that ringing any bells 
Yes, it is, because he worked for a library down there, and the library is no longer standing. They have torn it down. But it isn't like what you would think by Lake Berryessa. Um, I actually contacted somebody from the school district and they verified the address and I would have to look that up for you. But um, what comes to mind when I read this was um, three or four of the Santa Rosa hitchhiker murders that were added on to the original Santa Rosa hitchhiker murder cases. They were found around a school and I, again, would have to look up the name of the school. So it makes me wonder if he is uh, referencing any of those victims. One of those victims was was pregnant. That's where my mind immediately went to, because it wasn't out there in Lake Berryessa, you know, like the Zodiac killer out there. Yeah, Lake Berryessa is quite a ways away from San Jose and where this library is. Actually, I want to do one question. Kathy, you submitted this question before you were on the show, and it was, do we know anything about his activities between 1986 and, and 1999? I have been investigating a little bit about Lance's activities between 88 and 99, or at least looking into unsolved missing and murdered people in Washington and Idaho. I don't think that he was dormant. My understanding is he left the valley when he was about 50, which I think is still pretty young. So I think physically he would have still been capable of hurting people and probably still interested in that. From what I understand about serial killers, most of them do stay active until their late 60s, maybe longer if they're physically capable of it. I was asked by a a listener. I didn't include it on these because it just came through a while ago. A listener and then actually another close associate said, I think you guys need to stop looking at the California cases or North Carolina cases and just focus on the LC Valley victims because the other ones are distractions. Um, I think in one of the documentaries, it may have been Cold Valley, one of the FBI profilers on there said that you really do need to look at wherever Lance lived in the past and look at cases around here because he's probably not if he's guilty of these they're probably not his first and not his last i want to go kind of around respond to that kind of uh suggestion that we because on the one hand i do see value in like just having a very narrow focus and because there are so many rabbit holes in these cases that it's easy to kind of get way off into left field but what are the what are the thoughts on you know, going to Santa Rosa, looking at those cases, the San Jose area cases, North Carolina, or others that pop up along the way versus a narrow focus. And Kathy, I'll start with you. Um, how do you, how do you respond to that in terms of how we might proceed or can, you know, think about mm-hmm. the approach? Well, I have three main ideas. One, as you probably know, I'm, I'm a connector. I'm all about gathering as much information as we can and and drawing lines between points of connection, you know, whether it's vacant houses or water or the mention of, you know, porches, verandas, and rundown decks. I'm all about how many of those connections can we make? Secondly, I don't think there's any harm in talking about cases that haven't been solved, right? I mean, because there's always a chance that we may stumble upon and solve a case that wasn't part of the original packet of cases we were looking at, you know? 
I, I think that kind of thing happens. People have been out looking for bodies and found the body of someone they weren't looking for. Like in yeah. the, you know, I think of the Gilgo Beach slash Long Island serial killer case. Right. I, and I and I'm just I think three, I think we're learners. And I think that we while we might limit the focus that we report on, I don't think that we should limit our research. Because we don't know what we're going to stumble upon. And I think that, you know, sometimes TV leads us to believe that serial killers are this one little thing that fit into this little box and they do this and they don't do that. And I just think that any human life is far more complicated and we might restrict ourselves from information that could help us if we limit our search. Right. Paul, thoughts on that? narrow focus versus looking at cases and places where he's lived? Well, I, I'm I'm curious who sent this comment in. Was this somebody from the area? No, I don't know who this was. I had an associate, though, a colleague, um, mentioned the same thing. But the original mm-hmm. email was from a listener, and I forget where they're from, but not the area. Okay. That just struck me a little bit as a possibility of someone who's very uh invested in the area and the cases they i can see that they want you to stick pretty close to those and not branch out um to an extent i think not a distraction um but uh you know unless every listener is out there doing what you've suggested which is to have their pen and paper down uh it, it can get hard to you know, and unless you've got your big board up on the wall with all the strings connecting all the dots, it, it can be difficult to keep track of of all of the connections. Uh, but to your credit, I, I and I and I've been skeptical of some. Um, but but to your credit, you make a good case for the connections, and and I agree that it makes sense that you look where he is, and if. Why? Why wouldn't you? If if there if there's enough question about him being the the, the main suspect, uh, even guilty in these other cases in that area, then uh, it it stands to reason that other places he has been, there could have been beginnings, uh, there could have been interims, uh, and, and there could have been continuations uh, beyond the valley. So it's. Uh, I think you do examine everyone, and and I think that you rule out where it doesn't seem plausible, and that gets harder to do when you say that mo can change. And but uh, I, I think they're worth looking at, finding similarities. I like the idea of the maps; uh, that that makes sense to me too. Uh, and when I was looking at Santa Rosa, looking into those, one of the things I was looking at was the the cases along a map because that made the most sense to me if you've got a hitchhiker you look at where people are getting picked up along a line and where that may uh not triangulate but <laughs> spread out into a web almost so i i think it's fine i i think you you had a, a strong impetus for the story and then as you've expanded your your research it makes sense to look at other cases i will say from my point of view, there's also a point to where it becomes overwhelming. I mean, there's so many cases that it's it it is. I mean, it's is it's overwhelming emotionally, plus just logistically, um, and in terms of trying to tell the story, right? For listeners to keep track of it all, it's really hard. And so I think that 
you know, those are really good points that you bring up. Marianne, your thoughts? I think both Kathy and Paul said it very well. Um, and not necessary to repeat everything that they said, but I'm in complete agreement. I can see, like you said, how it can be overwhelming on your end or our end and also can become you know kind of confusing and and difficult for listeners to keep track of who's associated with what and where this happened and where that happened but again you know what's wrong with looking at unsolved cases you know what's the worst that could happen you you rule him out you find evidence of you know that hasn't been found before that could connect him to the case or like i said rule him out but you know, lead to somebody that hadn't been looked at before. You know, all of these cases are important. There's somebody out there who wants to know what happened to their loved one. And right. so, you know, if you can help in any of these cases, I I say go for it. And Yeah. And even if they're not Obviously, not all these cases are connected to one person, and and that person may or may not even be Lance. But there are cases that matter because people, they're they're loved ones, right? So I think that that's a, a really good point and something to bear in mind always as we go forward. Gloria, I'll give you the last word in this question of narrow focus on the valley versus you know kind of branching out. Um, I totally agree with Kathy because you want to get all that information and. Um, and Paul, because, you know, you it does get overwhelming, but um, there could be cases that could be solved. Now, one thing I, I have done, I've created these maps, and um, I shared those with you, Brandon. Yeah. And it shows victims in the different, different um, Bay Area versus where he worked, where he lived, his acquaintances. And then I created another one that was routes. And where he traveled during certain years and where victims were. Would it help to put those on the uh, web page for people to look at? Not saying that all the victims are his, sure. but it gives you an idea of the location and the method in which these women were killed. I looked at strangulation and I looked at stabbings. I also looked at missing persons and I would be more than happy to create something for the web page to be put up, put up there, if you're good with that. Because that could do one of two things. It could stir a memory of, yes, I do remember Lance being here. Or, yes, I remember this victim, and here's what I know. And that could be funneled off to law enforcement. And it could help another case. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I think the map would be would be helpful. And I've been talking with Sam on exactly it would be really cool to create a as robust of a map as possible. And you've already created most of that with all those different layers. So um listeners can look forward to having some kind of a map to um engage with in the future. And so we'll get that on the website just as soon as we can. 
For now, though, I want to thank each one of you, Kathy Belvin, Marianne White, Paul Dale, Gloria um, Boberts, as always. We still have a lot of work cut out for us. Uh, for the listeners, keep writing in, keep thinking, keep digging, don't give up. And if you have any idea, no matter how small or how big or wide or sweeping, just let us know. And uh, we do have a very engaged team here who is very eager and happy to uh, leave no stone unturned. And with that, uh, I want to thank you for your time. The Snake River Killer is a production of Resuscitate Media, LLC. I'm the host, Brandon Schrand. Original music is written and performed by the Young Knight Drifters. Special thanks to Blake Walker, our engineer, Associate Producers and Investigators Gloria Boberts and Paul Dale, Graphic Designer and Content Contributor Samantha Sawyer, Research Consultant and Criminologist Dr. Marianne White, and Research Assistant Tina Landry-Otti. Special thanks to Jennifer Anderson and Vernon Lott for letting us air portions of their documentary, Confluence. Be sure to check us out online where you can subscribe to the show and find resources, photos, timelines, articles, links, and more.